When was the last time you were mistreated? I, I thought a fair amount about that question this morning. And, and the more I thought about it, the more convinced I came that I've never really been mistreated. Oh, I've had my, my feelings hurt. I've had my will thwarted. I, I've had things I wanted to get done, not allowed to get done. But I don't know that I could go as far to say that I've been mistreated. Mistreated like Graham Staines. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that name or not. But in 1965, Graham left his homeland of Australia and went to meet a pen pal in India and fell in love with India. He would spend the remainder of his life in India, never returning to Australia. He began to work in, in a Christian mission, eventually became the, the head of a leprosy colony. January of 1999, his sons... 10 and 6 were with him as they were at a camp retreat, not really a camp like we have. They didn't have any cabins or even tents. They were spending the night in their car when a group of fanatical Hindus convinced they were there to force converse Hindus to Christianity, broke all the windows of his car, threw gasoline in it, lit it on fire, and when he and his sons tried to escape, they kept them from leaving the car. And they were burned alive because they were Christians. I would love to tell you that Graham Stain's story is unique. But 2021 was the worst year in human history for persecution against Christians. Many Christians around the world experience hostility because of their identification with Christ. They face immense pressure and sometimes violence. They encounter hostile attitudes, words and actions. Out of 2.5 billion Christians, the 2022 World Watch List reports that 360 million Christians around the world face high levels of persecution and discrimination because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That's one in every seven Christians worldwide. One in seven Christians are threatened, shunned, imprisoned, displaced, abducted or beaten. Some are pressured to convert. Some cannot possess religious materials. Some must hide their faith from their families. Some are driven from their homes. Some lose access to education or jobs. Some cannot legally identify as Christian. Their churches are raided, closed or destroyed. Our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ live this reality every day all because they refuse to deny the name of the one who died for them, the one who died to save all of us. The 2022 report reveals that persecution of Christians has reached the highest level since the World Watch List began, nearly 30 years ago. The severity of persecution and violence against Christians is not abating. There has been violence from extremist groups, military coups, political unrest, kidnappings and forced marriage. Many have become refugees seeking safety, and many have uncertain futures. Yet we see God at work. We see perseverance in the face of adversity. We see persecuted Christians holding on to faith, under severe threat, and where faith costs the most. We are inspired by their faith and courage, committed to support and stand with them as one global body of Christ. Our vision is that no Christian suffers persecution alone. Join us.
to give you some perspective, the 2021 World Watch List found 250 million Christians persecuted. A hundred million jump in a single year. Put that in the context of the verses before us this morning. Bless those who persecute you. See, I, I, I really don't think most of us can honestly say we understand what persecution is really like. We may lose a job, a promotion. We may have people say things we wish we didn't happen to listen to. We may have those strange looks. But when Paul is writing, he's writing to a world where the likelihood is you will die for your faith. And when he talks about being persecuted, it is from a person who full well knew what persecution was like. By the time Paul writes the book of Romans, he's already been stoned and left for dead in Lystra on his first trip. He's been beaten, put in stocks, and in the dungeon in Philippi on his second trip. He's been chased out of Thessalonica and Berea. He's finding a, a moment to write a letter. Paul understood what persecution was. And yet he is going to command us to bless those who persecute you. Now, now just for sake of discussion, I I must admit I've struggled a little bit with what exactly Paul is referring to. If you go back to where we were last week, verse number 13 ends with a statement, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. If I can just take a, a, a rabbit trail just for a second. Uh, We didn't have a lot of time. I kind of rushed through a lot of those commands last week. Hospitality is more than what we deem it today. There's a hospitality industry that largely talks about eating and sleeping. Hotels, restaurants are the hospitality industry. In the first century, hospitality was absolutely essential. On Wednesday night, uh, Jason normally does the singing. I, I have been given the privilege of telling this story. Last week, Jason was not president, so Renee was filling in for him. And with the older kids, she just decided to start with a few prayer requests. Little did she know there would be 10 minutes of prayer requests. But one of the first prayer requests was to pray for the people in Ukraine. And she shared a story about two decades ago. I had a chance to speak out at East Iowa Bible Camp. And if you're out there at all, you know that they generally have a Bible teacher and a missionary. The missionary at that time was a family that was headed to Slovakia. My wife primarily has kept up with them pretty well and and received a series of letters over the last several weeks. If you're not a, a geography bug, you probably don't realize that Slovakia borders Ukraine. And they were sharing that they had a Ukrainian family that needed a home, and so they moved their kids out of their bedrooms and emptied the entire bottom floor of their flat. And there currently is a family of seven, three kids, mom and dad, and mom's two sisters living in their home for who knows how long. May I suggest that's hospitality. Would you open your home to total strangers with no idea of how long they will be there or if they will ever leave. Anyway, back to the normally scheduled sermon. Paul says in verse 13, he says, share with God's people. And then in verse number 16, he's going to say with one another, which almost always in the New Testament is referring to believers, to Christians. 
And so the question becomes, bracketed between these two verses of God's people and with one another, is this command to bless those. And so the question becomes, is Paul speaking of outside of the church or the persecution coming from inside the church? Well, if I can just give you a little bit of background, if you remember, I, I, I've shown this slide a, a couple times when we introduced the book. Uh, the church at Rome was probably planted by Jews who heard the gospel on the day of Pentecost, but in 49 AD, Emperor Claudius said to all of the Jews, get out. You can't live here anymore. Imagine if tomorrow morning you received an email from the president saying Christians are not allowed in America. Leave by noon tomorrow. Or die. That's what the Jews in Rome experienced. They knew what real persecution was like. And so it seems like it was probably more than just interchurch squabbles. In fact, if I may bracket verse 14 with verse 17, Paul is clearly looking outside the church. And so then what do I do with verse 16? Is that talking about also outside the church? And I've come to the conclusion, I don't know. I don't know that it really matters. How we treat one another inside the church shouldn't dramatically change how we treat those outside of the church. But Paul is going to begin with this explicit command that you and I are to bless those who persecute us. I would suggest there are a few commands that are more core to the Christian belief than this one. I, I could spend the rest of the morning taking you through almost all of the, the writers in the New Testament. James talks about it in chapter 3. Uh, Paul is going to refer to it back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He's going to say, we work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we blessed. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Peter, in his first letter, is going to say, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. But without question, the reason I think it is echoed so often is because it comes from the very words of Jesus himself. Uh, in Sunday school, uh, Andrew's going through the Sermon on the Mount and we're in the Beatitudes this morning. And one of those Beatitudes are, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to explain what does that look like. And Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That, may, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the worst among us, the worst sinners Jesus could come up with? Tax collectors, don't they do the same thing? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than anyone else? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says God doesn't just send rain to the righteous. I've often wondered what that would look like if rain only fell on the lawns, the farms of the righteous. It's not the way God works. He is willing to bless even those who curse his name. But I I like the verse for this reason, because I, I fear when you hear the word bless, we in our 21st century materialistic society almost automatically jump to some kind of material blessing. Somebody's persecuting me, that means I need to give them something. I need to do something for them. Jesus uses the word pray. 
I would suggest that's interchangeable to the word bless. The Hebrew understanding of the word bless is not to give them material things, but to desire for and to ask God for the very best in that person's life. I don't believe it's a stretch to suggest the book we're reading is a direct result of that principle. If I can go back to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is the story of Stephen. And as Stephen is first assigned to take care of the widows, he eventually becomes an outspoken person. He gives this amazing sermon in Acts chapter 7 in which he goes through the, the history of Israel and how they so often rejected the prophets. And eventually when Jesus would come, they rejected Jesus as well. And as the, the people listened to Stephen, they became increasingly irate at Peter, at Stephen rather, and eventually they will pick up stones and in their anger they will murder him. They will persecute him. But Luke, as he shares this story, ends the story with this amazing comment about Stephen. As he's dying, he looks in heaven and he sees Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And as he's there, he prays. In fact, he prays this. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. We have no idea what happened to the majority of them. But we do know what happened to the leader of them. May I suggest Paul's conversion is a direct answer to Stephen's prayer. The great Augustine would make the comment that the church owes Paul to Stephen's prayer. This isn't a theoretical thing. Stephen, as he's dying, asks God to forgive even Saul, his murderer. And God does. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. But then he moves on to his second command. He's going to say, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Are you a sympathetic, empathetic person? I have to admit, if you were to survey my children, I think they would tell you I am not. I I, I grew up with parents who were often deathly ill. My mom spent large amounts of time in the hospital. And, and, And I've kind of developed this mindset that if you're not headed to the ER, you're really not all that sick. Come on, I, I don't have any sympathy for you. Mourning for people who are mourning is not my strength. Is it yours? And yet we are called to mourn. I was listening to a pastor who was sharing a story. He went through a major back surgery, and he was sharing a little bit about the experience and how it was way harder than he could have ever imagined. He was basically in bed for several weeks, and and as he began to get better, there were several times that he would take steps back And he shared one particular event when one day he reached wrong on the couch and uh, this pain shot up his back so bad that he just lost it and he began to weep. As he wept, his young daughter came, sat next to him, put her head on her daddy's shoulder and wept with him. Didn't say a single word. And he would go on to say that of all of the kind deeds anyone would do for me, none of them were as encouraging 
as my daughter crying with me. Jesus did that. John chapter 11 is this incredible story of Jesus going to the death of Lazarus. Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick, but Jesus also recognizes if he goes back to Jerusalem, death awaits. And yet, we're told when Jesus arrives, he weeps. Why does he weep? He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows that in just a few moments he's going to go to the tomb side and he's going to declare, Lazarus, come out, and this man who has been dead for four days is going to come back to life. And all of this sorrow, all of the tears will be instantly replaced with unimaginable joy as the one who is dead is now alive. So why does Jesus weep? I think Jesus weeps because Jesus mourns with those who mourn. We are called to be people who come alongside others. I like to fix problems, not sympathize with them. Sometimes what others need is just for us to care. But as hard as it is to mourn with those that mourn, it may be even harder to rejoice with those who rejoice. Are you excited when somebody gets the promotion you were hoping for? When you hear of somebody who is expecting and you don't seem to be able to conceive? When someone announces an engagement and you can't even find a date? When things are going well for others and poorly for you? Do you find it easy to rejoice with those who rejoice? See, Paul says the church needs to be a place where we come alongside one another and weep when weeping is necessary and rejoicing when rejoicing is happening. He he continues and he says, thirdly, I, I want you to harmonize, live in harmony. This verse is kind of a difficult one. It it would be easy to to suggest that Paul is throwing out a bunch of different commands. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And at first glance, may appear that they are separate commands. If you go to the original, you'll actually figure out, if you were here a couple weeks ago when we were in verse number three, Paul uses the word think four times. Most English translations only get it twice, but Paul is actually going to use it three to- four times. It comes on the heels of verse number two, renew your mind. That's the way that you can no longer be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. And a big part of that renewal is the way that you think. He does exactly the same thing in verse number 16. Rather than using the word think four times, he uses it three times. Harmony is literally the word think together with others. You need to think of yourself not too highly. You you need to not be conceited. Paul is trying to suggest that the goal for each of us is not to elevate ourselves, not to think of ourselves too highly. C.S. Lewis has said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That the whole idea is that we need to be careful that we are not so caught up in our problems that we don't notice the problems around them. But harmony is an interesting concept. If you were here last week, I played this video clip. No, I'm not going to play the full five minutes. You can go on YouTube and watch it if you want to. But it is this fascinating montage of this orchestra 
playing this incredible symphony, Beethoven's Ode to Joy. And what's really fascinating is most of them aren't playing the same notes. They're not playing the same instruments. They oftentimes aren't even in the same octave. And you could listen to any one of them, and if you did, you would hear these people masterful at their instrument, but really kind of boring. But when it's all together, it produces a beauty, a sound that is incredible. Paul is saying that that is exactly how you and I must learn to live. That it's not about my gifts, but our gifts. The ability as a body to function well together. But I fear sometimes we think things are beneath us. Now, I was really tempted to do this this morning, but I I didn't want to get Megan and Matt in trouble. I I was really tempted to scatter around the auditorium and church trash (laughs) to see how many of us would find it beneath us to reach down and pick something up. See, that's not my job. I would never do that, right? Can I be entirely honest with you? This morning I was up in the choir loft and there was some trash and I walked past it and thought, oops, I better go back and get that. (laughs) Are there jobs that are beneath you? I I, I recognize that few societies in the history of humanity have been as egalitarian as all men created equal as we are, and yet it is so easy for each of us to begin to to decide, "Eh, I'm sorry, that's, that's not really my job. That's someone else's job. That's the janitor can pick that up. The the kid's teacher can teach in Sunday school. What I find really fascinating is Paul, in the first part of the chapter, is going to make the point that we need to be careful to use our gifts well. And then he's going to come back and say, yeah, you need to be using your gifts, but sometimes you just need to do what you can where you are. Because part of the the joy is the ability for all of us to work together as a body. And and then Paul is going to turn to this vengeance. In in verse number 17, down through the end of the chapter, he's going to say, Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends. But leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul is going to give out three commands that taken together really basically mean the same thing. Don't repay people who mistreat you. Come on, don't you want to do that? I'm not a huge Facebook person, but I have found myself, because we're putting our services on, ending up on Facebook, and I don't know what your Facebook looks like, but you scroll through and there's all these videos. As I was scrolling through the videos one day, I was struck by this thought. I think the video that Facebook evidently thought I wanted to watch was the video of the underdog who is picked on getting the chance to then beat up the person who picked on him. And be honest, isn't there something fun to watch the underdog beat up the powerful? And then I started to wonder, 
Do I really like vengeance more than I should? Am I really okay with saying vengeance is not mine? In fact, I'm going to be careful to do what's right in the eyes. I'm going to leave room for God's judgment. In fact, I'm going to overcome evil with good. I'm going to say no. It's not my chance to get vengeance. One of the commentaries that I was looking through had this picture, and maybe you can't relate to this, but I find myself often wanting to fight with God for the right to get my own vengeance. But Paul says that we must be willing to trust God. In fact, he makes a couple of really important points. Vengeance is not mine. It is God's. So then I am forced to ask the question, is it wrong for me to want justice? If I'm not supposed to seek vengeance, is it wrong for me to want justice? Well, let me throw out a couple things. First of all, vengeance, justice, is God's. You and I have a very limited view. Rarely do we ever see the whole picture. In fact, never am I able to truly judge the motives, the, the reasons that somebody does something. God has no such limitations. He sees all and will, in fact, one day reap justice and vengeance. So does that mean if somebody's mistreating me, I should just allow them to? We're not going to get to Romans chapter 13. Sadly, I think we're ending the book of Romans this morning. Chapter 13 is an entire discussion on God has ordained authorities to bring justice to the world. That human government is God's tool today to bring that justice. It's not mine to become a, a justice seeker that I bring justice, but I allow others to bring justice. The question that I struggle with is do I really believe that God will bring justice? May I suggest that the Christian life is all about faith. We've talked about it repeatedly as we've gone through those first 11 chapters in Romans as Paul goes out of his way to suggest none of us will ever be good enough to earn God's favor, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, that our wages deserve death. But to the man who does not work but believes his faith is counted as righteousness. That in order to cross that line, I must learn to believe God's grace. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But so is the Christian life. See, right now, I have to believe that God will bring vengeance, will bring justice to those who've harmed him. In fact, I believe that eternity will bring great consequences to those who appear to get away with everything because no one ultimately will. Do I really believe God will avenge me and others? Jesus did. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter writes these words, do, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful. This is John. Let me get to Peter in a second. I don't know what your Bible is like, 
But if you notice the italics there, it's because it's an Old Testament quote. Some Bibles indent them. Some Bibles put bold. Some Bibles put italics. Paul is quoting from Proverbs 25, 22, when he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. I don't guess any of us struggle with what he means. Now, we struggle with doing that, but I don't think we struggle with what he means. And then he says, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. What does Paul, what does Solomon mean? Well, there are two accepted interpretations. The first is, as you go back to the Old Testament, coals are almost always associated with judgment. And many would come to this passage and suggest that what Solomon, what Paul is saying is by doing kind deeds to those who have mistreated us, the result is we are making their judgment even greater when God comes. The second interpretation goes back to an ancient Egyptian parable that in a world before matches, in a world before uh, autopilots, if you needed a fire, the way you got a fire started was with a red-hot coal. If you were slack in your duties, you may allow all of your coals to go out and then you'd be forced to go to your neighbor and ask to have some of his coals. And, and the habit was to take and put them on a clay pot on top of your head. And if you really wanted to shame someone, you would heap lots of coals on top of his head, hoping that due to the shame, he would change. I'll be honest, I don't know which is right. I'm going to stick with the first half of the quotes. Feed your enemies. Clothe them. Do nice to them. Don't overcome evil with evil. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, is going to make this comment. He's going to say, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. I'm pretty confident had I been Jesus on the cross and watched those sinners hurling insults at me, I would have thrown insults right back. You wait till I come a second time, then we'll see who's powerful. You wait till that day, then judgment is coming. It's not how Jesus died. One of his final expressions was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
In just a few minutes, we're going to gather around the communion table. It's a graphic reminder of what Jesus endured willingly for you. Your sins were the reason he died. And he died willingly so that you could enjoy forgiveness. Father, I I do thank you for the chance this morning to talk about something that, frankly, is not all that comfortable. We don't like to think persecution is a possibility. We don't like to suffer. But God, I, I do pray when hardships and sorrow come that we might truly trust you and that when we're mistreated or injustices arrive, that we would truly trust you to act as you see fit. Thank you for dying in our place so that we could have our sins forgiven. May those who mistreat us experience the same joy. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.